Hi guys, I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And welcome to another episode of a Tap on the Race podcast. Another episode in quarantine. Another episode in quarantine. However, this is not really an episode in quarantine. We went into our archives this week and we're actually releasing an episode recorded pre-quarantine and I feel like it's important to say that because you can tell we are in the same room in the episode because oh yeah it just the audio is better <laughs> the audio a the audio is better b the the like re- like rebuttals back and forth it just it jives better I'm not gonna lie like the episode I was like crying when I was editing it because it was so funny and I kind of miss some of that 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 we don't get when we're not face-to-face telling each other our stories so right this intro the intro and outro are recorded during quarantine and what Um, sounds worse than the rest of the episode it's gonna sound great and then it's gonna change and that's okay (laughs) we're winging it but I did want to say it because it's very clear we're in the same room and yeah still quarantined we're still not recording together it was recorded back in February and um February feels like four years ago I feel like I've lived a lifetime since that (laughs) Uh, those of you that maybe are just finding our podcast because you are on quarantine as well and have some extra free time, uh, welcome to a tap on the wrist. We, we tell stories about alcohol and history. Yeah. We might not always be a hundred percent factually correct. Uh, if we aren't because we're not historians please let us let us know in a nice way and we'd be happy to correct ourselves yeah we love hearing from people we love getting ideas I just every time we we pick a new theme which is every week and we research it I always learn something new and I think that's one of the things I like most about doing a podcast for sure um I feel like I was a nerdy person who actually enjoyed school for the most part, you know, certain subjects, like I I wasn't a big math person, but I did like history. And so like, this gives me a chance to kind of still learn, which is nice. Yeah. So if you want to, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, if any of you guys want to hear about a specific topic, you you should reach out to us. Also, like I said, if you want to give us a correction and you can do that by probably following us on social media is the easiest and it's, we're on Instagram and Twitter and our handles at a tap on the wrist. And then our email address is just tap on the wrist podcast at gmail.com. So feel free to follow along. We're always posting pictures of our episodes. We welcome suggestions. Uh, if you were following us on Instagram this week, I posted, I'm growing out some quarantine plants for cocktails and I posted an up dated picture my time plant has sprouted and I'm so excited I am a terrible terrible green thumb like I kill succulents which are literally the easiest plant to grow she actually just sent me the picture at first and I was like you have to post that our listeners will want to (laughs) know so uh follow us on social media and interact and it's you know 
I know it's a hard time for a lot of people. So the more that we can kind of stay happy and motivated and um, keep each other upbeat, the better. Yeah. If we can make you guys smile or laugh or teach you something in quarantine, then it's all worth it. Yes. And in general, when we're out of quarantine too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This week we picked an interesting theme. Yes. Well, we decided to stay abroad because we were abroad last week in the Czech Republic. Czech, why did I say that? Czech Republic. (laughs) Yes. So our theme this week was um, really interesting. We picked just a country. We picked Australia, which is also a continent. Um, But then while doing the research, weirdly enough, we both picked like the same time period in Australian drinking history. Uh-huh. And the same like small area of Australia, same it's general area. Area, but it is generally the same um, time period. It's all about the temperance movement yeah. in Australia. So it's a it's a good one. I think everyone's going to enjoy it. I think so too. Okay, before I get really into my story, okay, I have to admit, I learned that I knew nothing about Australia (laughs) while doing this because I had to search far too many words up. Yeah. And like rearrange some vocabulary. So I'm just, this is like a blanket apology for mispronunciations, for Mm -hmm. explaining things wrong because I tried to do my best learning the legal system of Australia, but like, I did it this in a couple hours. And, yes. You know. This this goes for me as well, because Laura and I discussed this in advance. I mean, not our story ideas, but right before we recorded, and I did it the same time period, <laughs> so there are a lot of, like, terms that we both were like, did you know that this is what this meant? Yeah. <laughs> it was really fun to kind of research a thing I didn't know a lot about, so it was cool. Yeah. Okay, so I am focusing today on a law that took place in Australia in the year 1916. It was called the Temporary Licensing Restriction Act of 1915, and it went into effect in most parts of Australia at some point during that decade. Um, How it worked basically was Australia already had certain drinking laws in effect, and this law restricted the hours of drinking more substantially and it when it went into effect in 1915 it was supposed to only last during world war one and then that it was not the case it ended up staying in effect for over 50 years in the country and it's very much like american prohibition when it's referenced in media and everything Mm -hmm. as like this restriction on drinking but it's so different from our prohibition which just outlawed drinking completely Completely, yeah um this just set time restrictions on selling alcohol so basically how it worked in south australia in new south wales in tasmania and in victoria which are four of the states in australia the law introduced a six o'clock closing time for bars and restaurants and that started in the year 1916 in Western Australia, which is where Perth is, they were a little bit more moderate with 9 p.m. closing times. And then in Queensland, which is like Northeast Australia, 
they didn't implement anything until the year 1923, which is like nine years later. Yeah. And they implemented six o'clock closings there as well, eventually. So now what I want to know is there and in the, in the South, in the South, because my story was in the South, who's done drinking at 6 p.m.? Like, well, that like was what, the who, point. I know, but like, well, the what was whole, the point of even having a bar that closes at 6? Well, I'm, I'm getting there. <laughs> um, but I think, I mean, the whole point was like, okay, you maybe get off work at 4.30, 5 o'clock. You go to the bar, have a drink or two, and then go home. Yeah. Instead of going to the bar and getting shit-faced all night. Or you just binge drink in like an hour. <laughs> well, I'm going to talk about oh, that okay, too. Sorry. Okay, sorry. Go. So the temperance movement in Australia really pushed to go into effect during World War One, and they thought this was the perfect time because they thought that by restricting the drinking hours, it was the health of the, like, the armed forces, right? By eliminating how much they could drink. We would mm-hmm. have, like, soldiers that were... That they would have soldiers that were better prepared for fighting. And that it also... Um, the people at home should practice the temperance out of respect for the people who were out fighting on the front line. Okay. Um, so that was really like the standpoints that the temperance movement made and the argument they made for the reform. Mm-hmm. And they said that by doing this, we were just that Australia was being more moral and financially effective. And so <clears throat> it was promoted as an opportunity to keep the country's spirits. Not not the alcoholic kind. (laughs) High. And to decrease alcohol-induced family violence and kind of redirect the money that people were earning, Mm -hmm. which was lower during wartime, from bar tabs back into the home. So it worked. The temperance movement goes into effect in 1916. But in no surprise to anyone in America... When yeah. you tell people not to drink, it makes them want to drink more. And yeah. people were not happy. This was not a popular law amongst drinkers or bar owners. Um, and there was, but there was one group that benefited from this. And they were unlicensed vendors who sold illegal alcohol. Yeah. Which... In America, we talk at nauseum about bootleggers and uh-huh. things like this. But in Australia, they're called sly groggers. Yep. Which... I wonder if, like, in Aus- like let's say someone in Australia was listening to our podcast, when we talk so cash about bootleggers, like, I wonder if they're like, what does that term mean? I'm sure. Whereas we're like, what is a sly grogger? Well, I kept seeing the word in research, and I was like... This is a weird slang. So I I looked it up, and I'm going to break it down for you. Okay. So a sly grogger, it's two English slang terms that Australians put together. So sly, which is a word that doesn't really feel like slang. I feel like we use Mm -hmm. someone being on the sly a lot. Yep. Or being secretive or covert. And then grog is a term that I don't think is very common in American English. But it's a diluted or adulterated substandard rum. Yep. I'm going to call you out right now because I have the same definition in my thing. <laughs> you got that from Wikipedia. You used I Wikipedia. I didn't use it. No, I didn't. Oh. 
that's the exact thing from Wikipedia. Even written like this. <laughs> I found it on multiple websites written like that. I did not use Wikipedia. Uh-huh. I'm watching you. I'm watching you. <laughs> um, and... Because I did find it on multiple websites written okay. out like that. So maybe Wikipedia is copying the website I, mean, I got it from. That, I mean, probably, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but now the term grog is what they call any alcoholic beverage. It's just kind of like the slang term for drinking. Right. Uh, okay. So I'm going to focus mainly on one inner suburb of Melbourne, <laughs> I think, as the Australians call it. Um, and this suburb is called Fitzroy. Um, and in this suburb, there's a group that kind of had a reputation for being the place you could go and visit to get your drink on outside of legal drinking hours. And even though the law takes place in 1916, prior to this law taking place, most bars and restaurants still had to close at 11. So Hmm. if you wanted to drink past 11, these sly grog houses were open. Okay. In like to the early hours of the, the night. They were like the after party. Right. But once the law goes into effect, now after 6 p.m., these sly grog houses are open. And so the, this particular slub, slubberb, slubberb. <laughs> suburb becomes really, really popular. And they have like this very large window to operate in like every day after 6 p.m., People are just leaving whatever bar they were at right. and going to this area at a party. Yeah. Um, also, bars were closed on Sundays, so Sundays were, like, always open for... Slygrog. Slygrog. Is that what I've been saying? Yeah, I have Slygrog. been saying Slygrog. Yeah. Right? Okay. It's just, like, it doesn't feel comfortable coming off my tongue. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so... Much like our organized crime in America during Prohibition, the organized criminal network during this temperance movement in Australia becomes even more organized. And, like, they had already kind of set the ground prior to this law going into effect. So once the law goes into effect in 1916, they already have a system in place and get, like really into it. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to explain just a little bit about what a sly grog is. And I don't... I know your story talks about it, right? But you talk about one particular... Yeah, one owner... An owner of okay. sly so grog I, places. I hope... I don't know. If, if it overlaps, it overlaps a little bit. Okay. So in this suburb called Fitzroy, again... Sly grog shops were just like normal rented houses. They would rent houses in this neighborhood of Fitzroy. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, they were set up just like bars. Like they had beer taps, um, washing facilities, furniture, kitchens where you could get food. Mm -hmm. And so you thought it looked like a regular house. And once you got in, it looked like a bar. Yeah. Right. So like a a modern day, like a speakeasy, right? Right. Um, And... Then on the other end of the spectrum were establishments that were at the other end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. You would walk in and it was like complete disarray, no furniture, 
maybe some wooden crates, mattresses for people to fall asleep when they got too drunk. Um, and on some occasions, these Slygrog houses was also have sex workers and rooms for customers to partake in. Mm. So it really ranged the whole gamut of like dirty and really just people kind of homebrewing. Yeah. All the way to like established bars mm-hmm. just hidden. And you know I'm sure again similar to America. I'm sure that there were some like sketchy places to go drinking and then, you know, classy speakeasies. Right. Um there were lots of stories I read where like people would just kind of wander in not really knowing what they were getting into and if they went into one of the like sketchier mm-hmm. houses um they would like be assaulted and have all their money stolen and all their stuff um by like the locals that went there yeah. all the time and so one story i found um there's a guy named James McGinnis who was assaulted in an alley after leaving one of these grog shops known as Porky Walkers in January of 1916. But when he was robbed, they found that he only had one pound on him, so they stole his glasses too. Oh no. And I was like, how shitty is that? You like go in for a drink, you end up assaulted, you're very little amount of money stolen. And you can't even see. And they take your glasses. Dumb. Um, So in Fitzroy, there's one man who kind of controls most of the grog shops or homes and his name is Edward goes by Ted Whiting and he was an Australian middleweight champion like boxing champion Mm -hmm. and the police called him the king of them all so he was like the king of the mall or them all them all okay I was like like, what mall (laughs) (laughs) um and like the newspaper once quoted him as the uncrowned king of Fitzroy. Okay. So he was kind of like the Al Capone of their temperance movement, mm-hmm. right? Um, also something I noticed because you had to be like, Ted, all the people in my story <coughs> and people, I feel like in American bootlegging stories and stuff, there's always a nickname. It's always yeah. like, Laura, the teacher, Robert. Yeah. like every time, right in the middle. <laughs> You just gave my full name on the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you can cut that out. <laughs> it's okay. Um, so, so he owned most of the Sly Grog shops, and it was known that if someone wanted to open a new one, they had to get his approval first. And if they didn't get his approval, then he would make sure that their home was raided by the police or he would just go in and, like, smash everything up. <laughs> so he, he was... Like Uncle Sam. He did not Walk into a care. bar smashing shit. <laughs> yeah. Throw it back to our first episode. <laughs> just with a baseball bat, I'm sure. Um, and, I mean, everything ran like a very well-oiled machine and Ted did very well with the the impact of this 1916 temperance law. Um, And so I was a little confused at how the system worked because there wasn't a whole lot of info about, I didn't find, about, like, how these grog houses got their alcohol 
at first. So then I did some more research and it seemed like this is how it worked in Fitzroy with Ted Whiting. He would have his grog house Mm -hmm. and then nearby, like next door or two doors down, he would rent a second home known as his depot. And the depot is where he kept all of the liquor Uh for his grog house. Okay. And so so they didn't keep the liquor in the grog house. Because if the grog... They do like runs? Yes, because if the grog house got raided, Uh they wanted everyone... It wasn't illegal to drink in Australia. It was only illegal to sell alcohol. Mm. So he wanted... If they got raided, they could Uh be like, everyone brought their own beer. We're just having a party. Yeah. So he like ran these depot houses and then he had deliveries to the depot house. Huh. And that's how he ran his system in Fitzroy. And he also had an in with um, the marine collectors who were licensed by the government to go around and collect all the empty bottles from bars and restaurants, like the legal bars and restaurants. And he would pay them to come to his grog houses during like late night hours and they would go in like the back and pick up all the empty bottles so that no one knew he was running these illegal bars in these neighborhoods. Hmm. And like, because what do you do? All of a sudden you have 400 empty bottles. Right. So he like had a plan so that it was completely hidden. And I've never thought about that. Yeah. Like I've I've talked about American prohibition. What do they do nauseam. with all the bottles? What do they do with all the bottles? That's a great question. It is. <laughs> but Ted had an answer. So <laughs> now we know what they did. Um he did have one main competitor in Fitzroy, and I only mention this because this guy's name is amazing. Okay. Squizzy Taylor. <laughs> And Squizzy Taylor was not to be fucked with. Uh, One time, Ted and him got into an argument. And so while Ted was sleeping, Squizzy went into his house. Squizzy. Shot him seven times in the head. Holy shit. Ted lived. Holy shit. Ted. Six bullets were extracted from Ted's head, one from his arm, and Ted's surgeon told newspapers that Ted Whiting only survived because of his extraordinarily thick skull. And I was just like, that is ridiculous. I swear to God, sorry, Squizzy came up in when I was looking up Kate Lee, who's, spoiler, my person. But I must have not written about him because <coughs> I 100% saw that name somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I think he was pretty big during the time period. Like, we probably could have done a story about him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Holy shit, Ted, with your thick skull. Could you have been shot six times in the head? Was it six or seven? I thought it was seven. It was seven shots. One oh, in the sorry. arm, six right, in right. the head. But he lived. And they continued their feud. Um, so, ironically, but also completely expected for the time period, um, soldiers were the ones who frequented these Sly Grog houses. Okay. Um, so even though the law went into effect to, like, keep soldiers sober so they can fight, like, they were the ones who went to these after-hour illegal bars. Mm, of course. Um, and I just added this because I thought this was pretty interesting. One of the busiest establishments in Fitzroy was run by a wounded soldier named Victor Ewart, 
And he named his establishment Anzac Cove, which anyone who is a history buff um, is the site of a famous World War One battle. So like, he got injured while fighting, came home, decided to run one of uh-huh. these slag grog houses, and then named it after a famous World War One battle between Turkey and Great Britain. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And another one, there's another brothel and slag grog shop run by someone named Mum Matthews, and it was called the Dardanelles, which again has a World War One reference. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the waterway that separates... It's again in Turkey, because while World War One to Americans means one thing uh-huh. to like a lot of the world, it's a different part of the war. Yeah. So like to Australia, they fought a lot in like the Middle East and that part of Europe, where mm-hmm. we fought more in Eastern or Western Europe. But so this grog shop, slide grog shop, was called the Dardanelles, and it is the the waterway that separates Europe and Asia. Mm-hmm. It's in Turkey. It actually splits Turkey into two okay. countries. And you uh-huh. can like be standing in Istanbul uh-huh. and you're in Europe and then you cross a bridge of the Dardanelles and you're still in Istanbul but you're in Asia. Interesting. It's like the one city that is in two continents. That's so crazy. Yeah. It's pretty awesome when you're there. Yeah. Um, but so he named his Sly Grog House after this. So while soldiers went there, there were also many named after World War One battles mm-hmm. and sites. And um, it was a lot to do with that. And then you mentioned earlier, like, why bars closed at 6 o'clock. And there's actually a slang term that they use in Australia still called the 6 o'clock swill. And it's that idea that, like, it's almost 6 o'clock. You have to order as many beers as you can <laughs> before the bar closes. So it's, like, our last call. Yeah. But they still use that term, even though it's not 6 o'clock. But, like, when the bar's about to close, yeah. they call it the 6 o'clock swill. And it comes from this temperance movement. Huh. Yes. Okay. We're getting, we're getting towards the end. Okay. <laughs> as one can imagine... <clears throat> Bar owners at the time who had to close their doors at 6 p.m. every day mm-hmm. were really angry at this law. Um, and they saw huge portions of their profits spilling into the black market. So they were fighting, like, at nauseum to have the laws reversed. Um, uh, they also were under, like, a lot of surveillance to make sure that they weren't serving alcohol after hours. And there's one story of a woman named Emma Foy Mm -hmm. in 1918 who ran a legal bar called the Victoria Parade. She was fined for trading or selling alcohol outside of licensing hours. And she had been allowing her customers into the bar and selling them beer after hours. Mm -hmm. And when she was raided, she told the police, you stop the Slygrog shops and I'll stop selling illegally. They're everywhere around here. So, like, they were just frustrated and upset. And I don't blame them. I can't either. I mean, it's different in our history because it was... was There was no legal bars. Yeah. But, like, to be a legal bar owner and then to see all of these illegal bars doing so much better, that had to be 
infuriating. Yeah. However, in 1919, a new chief commissioner takes office and he launches an attack against Ted Whiting's Slygrog network and is pretty successful in dismantling all of his, you know, like, legacy. Um, Ted was arrested and sent to jail for being the occupier of a house frequented by thieves. So, like, he's not arrested for selling alcohol or anything else. It's only for, like, being a place that there's a lot of thievery. And his headquarters are raided, he's arrested, and four members of his gang, like the top leaders of his gang, are also arrested. And it's during his imprisonment that, like, the gang kind of breaks up. It's the end of his monopoly in the Fitzroy suburb. Uh-huh. And, it, it, like, his reign is over. But it's only 1919, and this law stays in effect in this part of Australia until February of 1966. Yeah. So for 40 years, there are cycles and people that, that open these slide rock homes and they come and they go. But once um, Whiting's monopoly is gone, it, uh-huh. it's not so organized and like one person running the show. It's just kind of a lot of people running these illegal bars. Right. However... In February of 1966, the law gets repealed, and on February 1st of 1966, the pubs of Victoria are packed once again with drinkers who turn out to celebrate the return of extended closing hours. They were allowed to drink uh, beer at their own pace, Uh no more six o'clock swill, and they could stay all the way until 11 p.m. That's what it was before, too, right? Yeah. Like, before the law started. And so, it was once the law was repealed, slide grog shops went out of business almost overnight. Yeah. I mean, there were a couple, like there had been prior for people Uh to go out after, but people were just happy to be able to drink till 11. Yeah. And that was it. I'm Um, happy to drink till 11, too. I know. You know, it's (laughs) funny, because I've never really thought about it. When I went to London... Years ago, yeah, I remember my friend and I went to a pub, uh-huh. and we probably got there at like nine forty-five, yeah, and they did a last call at like ten forty-five, uh huh, and we were in utter disarray because in New York it's like four a.m. right, and we were like, "What is this nonsense?" And so, and like the tube would <laughs> shut down too, yeah, I, like it. It wasn't like New York where you would just go all night and be able to hop on the subway. I know, and. So we, at like, it was like 10.55, and we were like, okay, let's get one more beer. Yeah. They wouldn't serve us, because I don't know, I mean, they clearly knew we were like American. I guess they thought we were trying to like, I don't know, get one over on them. So we were like, okay, fine, we'll go somewhere else. We didn't know it was the law. We just thought this bar was closing. So I remember us leaving, and we walked, and we like tried to go on another bar, and they were closed. Mm -hmm. And we were like, what's going on? So then we went... To, like, the equivalent of a bodega. Uh-huh. Everything was shut. Like, the bodega was open, but all the alcohol... Yeah. ...cabinets, refrigerators, were, like, shut and locked. And we were like, what is going on? And they're like, we don't sell alcohol after 11 p.m. And, like, my friend and I, it was Elizabeth. Yeah. We're like, 
what? Like, this is ridiculous. And so we went back to the hotel and we went to the concierge and we were like, where can we drink now? And they were like, the only place you can drink was at the hotel bar and only because we were registered guests at the hotel. Wow. They could serve us. Interesting. But, like, you can't just walk into any hotel and drink. You have to Uh be a registered guest. And I could not believe that was the law because I had never experienced that. And so it makes sense that in Australia, just because of the colonization, that they would follow similar laws. And the last thing I want to talk about is today, if you go to Melbourne, (laughs) you can visit the former Sly Grog shops and brothels of Squizzy Taylor. Um, Good old Squizzy. In 2012, they were almost at risk of demolition. But a lot of people fought to save them, Mm -hmm. and so they became part of a mini heritage precinct, and they were saved. And so he's notorious for these two um, grog houses. I think one was also his depot that he ran, and um, they are still there today. And I think they're now a little bit of like a museum Mm -hmm. that you can go and check it out. But uh, they're still there, so Cool. cool. Yeah. So I used... Literally only one source for all of my information. It was an article written by Michael Shelford, and it was called The Law That Was Loved by Criminals. And I found it on a website called the Melbourne Historical Crime Tours.com. And Wikipedia. I did not use Wikipedia. <laughs> I promise I did not. Okay. Okay. Don't believe me. <laughs> As I mentioned in Laura's story... I'm going to be talking about a gangster named Kate Lee. And she was known as the Queen of the Underworld. Ooh. Yeah. And I was excited that she was a lady gangster. A lady gangster. I'm into that. It's definitely my style. And she has two first names. Yes. Well, that's not her original name. But oh. it's, a, it's her married name. I'll get to it. Okay. Um, one of the sources that I read... Is Wikipedia. Yes. But it was not Wikipedia that did this, but one of the articles I read referred to her as a crime entrepreneur. (laughs) I just thought that was really good. I don't know why. I just really enjoyed that. So, Kate was born Kathleen Mary Josephine Behan? Behan? Don't know. I forgot to look it up. (laughs) Yeah, two middle names. She was born on March 10th, 1881 in Dubbo, New South Wales, Australia. I didn't look up pronunciation of any of these things, so deal with me, Australians. I'm just kidding. I'll I'll fix it if you correct me. So (laughs) You're like, no, I'm afraid. Sorry. I apologize. (laughs) She was the eighth of her parents' children and was sadly very neglected as a child and started getting in trouble early. So when she was 12, she was incarcerated in Parramatta Industrial School for Girls, which, you know, sounds dreary. Yeah. Being incarcerated at 12. Like, yeah. That's, that's not great. No. But, like, what were her older siblings? If she's the eighth, there are seven siblings to help take care of her. How are you neglected? I don't know. Like, that's sad. Maybe okay. they, maybe some of them were already out of the house. I don't, okay. Who knows? But in 1900, in 1900, exactly, 1900 flat, she had a daughter 
named Elaine May. This was out of wedlock. Okay. Then in 1902, she married a man named James Ernest Lee, or Jack, because you know that everyone has to have a middle name, middle name, a nickname. nickname. Jack Lee. Jack Lee. And I think I read somewhere, I didn't write this down, that it was actually L-E-E. She later changed it to the spelling of Lee, L-E-I-G-H. It is the more feminine spelling of Lee in yes. many cases. Yes. But not all. Because <laughs> we have a male friend who spells Thanks, it that way. Yes. <laughs> Jack was an illegal bookmaker and petty criminal. And three years into their marriage, he was arrested for assaulting and robbing their landlord. After his trial... You- <laughs> that does not seem like the person you assault and rob. I know. Like, they own your home. Yeah. They know who, they you, know are. who you are. <laughs> what? Oh, God. So, after his trial, Kate was also imprisoned, not only as an accomplice to the assault, but because she allegedly lied under oath in his defense. However, her conviction was overturned, and after his imprisonment, the two separated. They, they were just like, meh, let me jump with this. They didn't officially divorce, however, until 1921. So Kate then began a relationship with a man named Samuel Jewey Freeman. Jewey was the nickname. <laughs> felt weird about saying that nickname but it was his <laughs> and he was even more involved in the criminal world than her husband he and his buddy named Ernest Shiner Ryan were convicted of armed robbery in 1914 so Kate really liked to date robbers apparently and she tried to give a false alibi for him Apparently the first time she lied under oath didn't didn't dissuade her from doing this and she was caught again and sentenced to five years in prison in 1915. Um, Kate was married a couple of more times, but I really only found brief mentions of the, her marriages and you'll know why I'm mentioning them now the fir- or in a second. The first one was to Edward Joseph Teddy Barry. <laughs> you didn't see me do the quotes for Teddy. Mm-hmm. In 1922... She that was only for a few years, and it just said he was a dealer. I don't know of what. Of toys. <coughs> Teddy bears. <laughs> That's my guess. And later in life, in 1950, she married Ernest Shiner Ryan, who I just mentioned. Oh. She went back to her ex Samuel Chewy Freeman's friend <laughs> and married him. <coughs> but that marriage only lasted six months. Well, you know, why try something new? You know what we're getting into. Anyway, back to her criminal life. <laughs> um, I'm guessing she didn't serve her full five years for lying because in 1919 was when she started her full-on criminal life because of, as you said, this law going into effect that made bars close by 6 p.m. She saw the opportunity and decided to get involved in the sly grog trade. And she would be involved in the trade until 1955. So I'm gonna tell you all about 
wow. her life from 1919 <laughs> to 1955. And so, like, in 1919, she's, like, 40? Well, she was born in 1881. I can't math. So, 1881 to 1900 is 19 years. Yeah. And then 19 and 19 is, yeah, almost 40. She's, like, 38. And she does it for 40 more years? Apparently. So, apparently, ha. <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> as we said, establish drinking establishments had to close by six p.m., and a lot of people took advantage of that. She, at the height of like her sly grogging, had twenty to thirty establishments. Oh. Most people said twenty, but a few said it was more than twenty. One thing said thirty. So between she's twenty and thirty, she's an entrepreneur. Yeah, she's a she's a criminal entrepreneur, <laughs> <laughs> and she was purportedly also a drug dealer and a madam, even though she herself apparently never drank or did drugs. Okay, she wasn't into it. She just wanted to give it to other people. So her home in Surrey Hills at two Lansdowne Street served as her main hub of criminal activity. It was used as an illegal hotel, which Laura and I were talking about earlier. I wrote this whole story and kept writing hotel. I was so confused. I was like, she like had a place where people stayed the night and also drank. But hotel apparently is a word for a, word a pub. bar. Or a bar, yeah. yeah. So this... What do they call hotels? I don't know. I'm going to Google it right now. So... This particular hotel or sly grog shop became known as the Lansdowne Hotel. And disclaimer that apparently there is also a perfectly legal hotel also named that, not associated with this. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't want those people to get mad. So during her time living there, there were some mishaps. For example, her bodyguard or business partner, he was referred to as both, maybe both, and her part-time lover, Henry George Baker, was shot outside by a Sydney criminal in 1938. He did live, though. Also in 1938, undercover police raided her home and confiscated 48 bottles and four kegs of beer, which is really sad. Okay. And Kate would serve six months in jail in 1942 for selling liquor without a license, both at this location and another one of her hotels. So, aside from her success with sly, sly grog and liquor, in 1927, something else was made illegal that helped contribute to her underworld success. Cocaine. Oh. Yes. Okay. The, dangerous drug, <coughs> the Dangerous Drugs Amendment Act of 1927 banned the sale of cocaine by chemist, and Kately was like, don't worry, guys, I got you. So, working with a network of doctors, dentists, chemists, and sailors, Kate got cocaine for the people, and she used women masquerading as sex workers to sell cocaine in the streets, which I didn't 100% understand because I'm pretty sure that I had read that at this point sex work was also illegal, so I'm not sure how that worked, that worked. or maybe, maybe it wasn't at this point when she was doing it. Anyway, 
This did lead, of course, to some issues for her, you know, selling cocaine. Yeah, as it does. <laughs> so in July of 1930, one of her homes was raided and she was found in possession of cocaine and sentenced to 12 months. It was actually two years, but she was allowed to pay 250 pounds in lieu of serving year two. Which seems like... Nah. Nah. Might as well, right? She was making enough money. Did you find what hotels are I called? did. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. So the law in Australia was that if you were a pub or a public house or bar, you had to have an accommodation. Oh. You had to provide accommodations. So they really were hotels. So they really were hotels. But it was often like... It says they were basically just taverns in disguise and accommodation was given little attention because that's not where they made their money. And then if you were... They, like, if you were just what we would consider a hotel, uh-huh. you were a private hotel, and that meant you didn't have a public bar. Interesting. But they call those private hotels, and hotels were bars that had to offer accommodations. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So that's... So now it makes, it makes sense. Yeah. All right. Back to Kate. Sorry. That's okay. Throughout the 30s and 40s... Kate was frequently raided. Well, not her. Her establishments <laughs> Whoa. were frequently raided. <laughs> and eventually she would be charged 107 times. What? She went to prison 13 times. So, like, not really that bad in comparison to the amount of time she was charged. And another one of her mishaps was in 1943 when police found 1,001 bottles of beer 84 bottles of whiskey, and one bottle of gin under the floorboards of one of her homes. I don't know why just one, just one bottle of gin. Just, you know, it's for that one local that just likes gin. Yeah. Jimmy. (laughs) (laughs) Jimmy the gin drinker. (laughs) And apparently when she went to court for all of these charges, she like showed up. She would be in, like, super showy, expensive clothes and furs, and she would wear diamond rings on every single finger. Like a boss. Like a boss. Can we just notice? Like a criminal entrepreneur. (laughs) (laughs) If she had a depot house, she would not have been caught. Exactly. She wouldn't have had to hide it under her She should have done some research. She should have. So, during all these criminal activities... Kate began to build a network of people around her in what were referred to as razor gangs. So these gangs came about after the Pistol Licensing Act of 1927, which imposed severe penalties for carrying concealed firearms, leading gangs to use to use razors as their main weapons. That's almost what I did my story about. Really? Yes. Yeah. But it led me into like all of this. Right. No, I'm, I'm, it's a brief mention, so it would have been fine if you would have done that, too. Yeah. But, yeah, that's, that's the kind of gang that she had around her. Because, again, guns were Illegal. a no-no. So. What a thought. Yeah, what a thought. So razors were easy to conceal, and that's what people used. And the two main razor gangs in this area were both run by women. It was Kate and her rival. Tilly Devine, or yeah, Devine. 
Anyway, Kate and Tilly had quite the rivalry. It lasted a whole 20 years. Wow. Yeah. It's a long time to hate someone. It is. Not only did the members of their gangs often clash and like just straight up attack each other when they saw each other in the streets, but the two of them themselves would physically fight each other. That's amazing. What were you going to say? I said that's amazing. And I want, I want to know, like, did they have a name? Like, Lee's Razor Gang. Like, Oh, I know. I thought the same thing, but it just didn't, it didn't really seem like, like You it. know they had a name. Yeah. Like, they had to know if they were a Lee or a Divine. Yeah. Like, do they have color? <laughs> like, we, we like, Bloods and Crips Yeah. here. I'm... I need to do more research. I know. I actually feel like, I was like, I wonder if it's because I'm in Australia, because I'm in Australia, because I'm not in Australia that like I couldn't find a lot of facts, Yeah. unless I maybe did a deeper dive into the web, but uh, but yeah, their rivalry lasted a long time, and I actually, there was a comic strip about the two of them on a website called rejectedprincesses.com, and you should totally look it up. I really enjoyed it, and... There was one story in particular where Tilly was like on the street confronting a female police officer, I believe, and Kate was passing by on a tram, saw Tilly, straight up leaped off the tram, and sucker punched her in the face. Oh my gosh. And then sat on top of her to like let the lady cop like do whatever she needed to do. Just flew, flew right on off. You found it? Yes, I found it. Oh my gosh. I'm going to wait for you to scroll down just so you can see that the image is hilarious. This is amazing. It really is. Like 100% look this up. We will link it. There we go. Look oh at my it. God. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Oh my gosh. We're definitely... We'll put a screenshot of this on social media. Yeah. But we'll also link to the whole website. Yeah. On Twitter. Please look it up. It'll be so worth it. Wow, this is like very well done and thought out. It is. I want to like look up more of like the comic strips that they have. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, not only would they get into physical altercations, but they would also send people to, like, each other's establishments to trash each other's establishments. So, like, send in Jimmy, who likes gin, to Tilly's and be like, just fuck up the place. Just light shit on fire, throw things around. Yes. And it got so bad that in 1935, the Sydney police commissioner had to, like, meet with them and warn them that they needed to tone down their violence and also tone down the cocaine dis- cocaine distribution. And they're like, you know, the cocaine is bad, but this razor game <laughs> bullshit needs to end. Yes. Or they would risk serious consequences from the police, and they apparently did agree to tone it down. That's crazy. So Kate was also involved in some murder because, like, of course, she was, you know, a gang leader. She most famously shot and killed another gangster named John William Snowy Prendergast in 1930. But to be fair, it was because he and some other gangsters broke into her home. And so she wasn't indicted for the killing because they broke in. It was self-defense. 
The other shooting that I found was of a man named Joseph McNamara in 1931. She also wasn't indicted. I'm not sure why. All I could find was that she shot him in the groin. Oh. He lived, but I I don't I don't know why she shot him or why she was let go of that charge. So Kate's lavish criminal life would eventually come to an end. In 1954, the tax department sent her into bankruptcy because of unpaid income taxes and fines dating back to 1942. And then in 1955, in, at least in New South Wales, hotels were now illegal, allowed, allowed to legally serve alcohol until 10 p.m., which hurt the illegal sly grog business. And Lee was quoted as saying, the bloom has gone off the grog. Oh. Yeah. So she went on to live in relative poverty for the rest of her life and was dependent on her nephew for finances. On January 31st of 1964, she suffered a stroke. And a few days later, on January 4th, at St. Vincent's Hospital in Darlinghurst, Kate Lee died. She was 83 years old. Her funeral was attended by 700 mourners and the press remembered her for her patriotism during World War II and her support of the unemployed as opposed to just her criminal history, which I like. wish I could have found more information about that stuff. Right. Um, Atlas Obscura did include a mention of a time where a detective followed Kate around and one day found her bound on a noble errand of supplying food to the unemployed as reported by the Barrier Mirror. And that was like really the only mention I... I saw of like what she did for the unemployed but apparently she helped them a lot and I actually started this out thinking that I would find more info for on her and I did it again I don't know if it's because I'm searching in America and not in Australia where she's better known um so you know if anyone else finds any really interesting articles about her life please send my way because she sounds like a real fascinating lady I did want to note one other fun fact that I saw on that rejectedprincesses.com strip. Apparently, she liked to go to random court cases to heckle the judges and lawyers. Like, she would just go in. She's apparently a murderino. That's amazing. <laughs> and, and sometimes she would peel her... <coughs> and sometimes she would peel her vegetables while, while doing so. So she'd just sit there peeling some veggies, heckling lawyers. That's and she awesome. sounds like a fun time. This website is a fun time. Like, rejectedprincesses.com. Everyone should check it out. I, for real, when I saw that strip, I was like, this is It's literally so all good. about badass women. Yeah. That, like, history has forgotten. And, like, these beautifully written comics. Like, the pictures right. are beautiful. It's this awesome. Person's very, this person or persons are very talented. And they have books, too. They've published books about it. Yeah. I just, I'm very, very into this. Oh, it's a dude. It is. Good for him. He used to work on animated movies like How to Train Your Dragon and The Croods. And then when he left the animation industry, he started Rejected Princesses, a blog celebrating women of history and myth who were too awesome, awful, or offbeat for the animated princess treatment. That's so cool. It's great. Yeah. It says he's a straight white dude from Kentucky. He's not a historian or trained artist. <laughs> this is really cool. You guys really should look this up. Um, 
But my sources besides Rejected Princesses was the Australian Dictionary of Biography, an article about Lee, which was written by Judith Allen. I also used Atlas Obscura. The article is called Sydney's Jazz Age Criminal Queens Rule the Streets with Razors by Naomi Rousseau and, of course, Wikipedia. And one last thing that I, like, saw in my search on the Daily Mail was that one of her at least 20 establishments recently sold for $1.7 million. Oh in 2015, which was nearly double the price that it was listed for. And it's located at 212 Devonshire Street. And the bottom floor at the time that the article was written, which again was like five years ago, so could be different, was occupied by a cafe called Sly, which oh. I liked the, the homage to the Sly Grog. Yeah. And that is what I got on Miss Kate Lee. Again, if someone finds... Any more information about her, please send it my way because she just seems like a badass, cool lady. Agreed. Now we've learned all about Sly Grog houses. Yes. And I feel like in, during quarantine, it's a little bit like this, like underground drinking, like all bars and establishments close. Yeah. It's like we get our alcohol. But we can't like go to an underground drinking establishment. So no, I know. You know. Well, I've I've managed. I found some ways to still drink in quarantine. Yeah, you've been really good. I've just been like, I'm just gonna drink wine. <laughs> it's easy. But you've been finding creative ways. Yes, I actually don't remember what we talked about last week (laughs) last week we talked about our own drinks that we were drinking I made a last minute cran vodka oh right you made a much fancier gin and tonic right so I don't think I've told everyone our listeners about when I ordered drinks and they got delivered to my apartment no you have not I was gonna suggest that you do (laughs) <laughs> so this kind of works perfectly with like the sly grog episode anyways but there is a, first off i have to commend everyone who has lost their job or been furloughed and has found like creative and unique ways to make money to pay their bills because i don't know what i would do if i had been laid off um I thankfully as a teacher, like that didn't happen. So it would be, I just, I'm really impressed by how restaurants and people have adapted to like this new normal for the time being. Mm -hmm. And so what happened is my roommate had told me about an Instagram she found and it was called the quarantine cocktail club. And so I joined it and basically it was a bartender or it might be a small group of bartenders. Pause. Isn't quarantine cocktail club what we were trying to call this segment? (laughs) Well, yes. And then (laughs) I want to call it that because that name was already taken. One day we'll come up with a name when quarantine's over probably. (laughs) Well, this could be like the quarantine cocktail queens. I don't know. Anyway, the Quarantine Cocktail Club. No, actually, they're the Quarantine Cocktail Collective. Oh, that's fancier than club. 
Yes. So it's a group of bartenders who got laid off during um, all of this. And they are, they moved online to Instagram and Google. And basically they are, you submit a form, a Google form, and it has like, there they have a menu and you put the drinks that you want to order. You give your information. Everything is paid through Venmo. And they literally dropped cocktails off to my doorstep. Um, let me know when the, the drop-off happened. I went outside, you know, took them. And then, like, four days later, the guy came back. And I he told me when he was on his way. And I left the mason jars out front. And he picked up the mason jars. So everything got recycled. And so it was just really smart. It was really easy to do. And I got to help out someone who, you know, lost their job. And I got delicious cocktails, which they were so strong. And I mean, I'm a cocktail drinker. And I even was like, okay, I need to like add something to these because they were very strong, very delicious. Some ice in there to help water it down a little. Yeah. Uh, and so I was really excited when I looked at the menu because they had a traditional daiquiri and we had just did that episode on daiquiris where you right. about it. So I was really excited and I ordered a daiquiri. How was that? It was amazing. It was very refreshing. It, it sounds super refreshing. Like I, like I want it to be like my go-to now, but I don't <laughs> want people to be confused. They shouldn't if they're a good bartender though. Right. And then I ordered, you know, I've said this multiple times throughout all of our episodes. Vodka is not my go-to spirit of choice, but you know, there was just something about ordering like a martini, like a dry martini. Right. That felt fancy. And so that's what I did. I got a martini and like they, they send you the garnishes as well. So they got like, I got some orange peels and lemon peels. I got a cherry for my Manhattan. Um, and then I got olives sent for the martini I ordered and I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I can't drink straight martinis. Like I, it's too much. Oh, wait, you, you, you ordered a straight martini and then you were like, uh. well, so I made it. And before I stuck the olives in, I was like, let me taste this. And I mean, a, a martini is literally like vermouth and vodka. Yeah. I, I couldn't do it. I'm just not that girl. So I ended up adding in some grapefruit juice and having like a grapefruit martini. Mm-hmm. And it was delicious. I did not add the olives to it because that would have not. Yeah, that would have been weird. I just ate the I, olives as like a. I assumed appetizer. that you. Sorry, I, I assumed that you would have ordered a flavored martini. I'd, yeah, I'm surprised they, that you that you even thought about ordering a regular. Martini. Well, I actually I do think you can ask for flavored drinks, but their menu is very like classic cocktails. Oh, okay. And I think that's more for the ease of just like getting all the orders out and delivered right. and not messing up. Um, and I have kind of prepared for making cocktails at home. So I have like blood orange juice and grapefruit juice and lime juice so that I can make cocktails. So it was really easy for me to adapt. 
and I threw in some grapefruit juice and then it was a lovely martini. But I had such high hopes of being like that classy girl who drinks her dry martini with an olive. Not, I'm not that girl. Did you put it in an actual martini glass too? I, no, I don't have martini glasses. Oh, bummer. I know. <laughs> did you take pictures of some of your cocktails so that we can post them? I did. I did. Nice. So you guys can see those yes. on Instagram and Twitter at Attack on the Wrist. Yes. <laughs> and if after listening to this story, you have a suggestion for another theme, another country, another topic you want to hear, um, please send us a message. Uh, our email is tapontherestpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. And uh, I mean, really just send us anything. I don't, I don't even care if it's an idea suggestion. I know. Tell us what you're <laughs> drinking. Give us, you know, I want to see your drinks. I want to be able to, you know, communicate and post. So reach out. I know, you know, some of our friends will send us text messages and that's really lovely, but send us pictures too. We want to share what you guys are doing. We want to share how you're surviving quarantine 2020. Yeah. Send us pictures of your cocktails and if, you are okay with us posting them on Instagram let us know when you send them and we'll post them and uh, tag you if you'd like yeah so until until next week yes we'll still Stay be safe. in quarantine in New York <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah stay safe guys and, and uh, you know respect the rules yes cheers All right. Cheers.